Welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and on today's episode, we are joined by one of my all-time favorite thinkers and writers in the sex education field, Emily Nagoski, a longtime friend of this podcast and a returning guest, here to talk about her new book, Come Together, The Science and Art of creating lasting sexual connections. This book is full of incredible strategies and frameworks for us all to rethink what it takes to generate and sustain lasting sexual connections. I loved this book. There is a link in the show notes for you to grab your copy. And at the end of this interview, Emily and I started discussing a powerful framework that was in this book that I loved so much. I wanted to develop out into a guided practice for all of us to really deeply engage with this framework of mapping our seven core emotions into a visual floor plan so that we can find our own specific pathways back to lust. So I created a guided practice for all of us. You will find it in the pleasure pod at pleasuremechanics.com slash pod. Join the pleasure pod, step into our inner circle and unlock bonus resources like this one, a curated best of pleasure mechanics full of our best resources so you can quickly get started engaging and exploring your erotic potential and join us for a monthly live calls come together with the pleasure mechanics community and be in community and conversation with us you'll find it at pleasuremechanics.com pod and now here is my conversation with emily nagoski Emily Nagoski, welcome back to Speaking of Sex. It is. I am so happy to be talking to you again. Mm -hmm. For folks who are new to you, I'd love you to introduce your work and this, your new book, Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections, and how you came to write this book after your others. Yes. So I'm Emily Nagoski, and I'm a sex educator. I Mm -hmm. have been, I started my first training back in 1995, which there are people listening to this who were not alive then. (laughs) And the passage of time is very strange. Mm I, you know, I got trained to go into residence halls to talk about condoms, contraception, and consent. Um, I added to that training as sexual violence prevention educator and eventually as a sexual violence crisis responder. This was while I was getting a degree in psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy. Love it. uh, like, I loved the brain stuff. Yeah. But all that brain, and I hope it like it shows up in my work. You're like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, brain stuff. Um, but none of the brain stuff made me like who I am as a person in a way the sex education work did. Mm. And so that's the path I chose. I started training as a sex therapist. I got a degree in counseling, realized about halfway through that I do not have the magical thing it takes to be a therapist. Um, 
And so finished that degree, got a PhD in public health, essentially, and started working as the director of wellness education at Smith College, where I taught a class called Women's Sexuality, which is a deliberately provocative course title at Smith College. Um, (laughs) And it was a very intense experience teaching there. Uh, So my last question on the final exam was just, just out of everything we talked about this semester, what's one important thing you learned? And more than half of my 187 students wrote something like, I learned I'm normal. Mm -hmm. I'm normal. I'm not broken. I can trust my body because I'm normal, even if I'm different from other women. Um, And anyone who's graded exams will know that this is not how it usually goes. I sat in my office grading with tears in my eyes, feeling like something important had happened. And I wanted to do it again. And I wanted to do it at a bigger scale. And that's Mm -hmm. the day I decided to write Come As You Are. Mm -hmm. Uh, A mere five and a half years later, it was published. And from writing Come As You Are and then talking to anyone who would listen about the science of women's sexual well-being came both of the next two books. Uh, The first thing that happened is that as I was traveling around, people kept saying, yeah, all that sex science is great. But you know, the one chapter that changed everything for me was that one about stress Stress. and feelings. Yeah, And uh, I said, I have an identical twin. And I said that to Amelia. And they were like, yeah, so remember that time when you taught me that stuff? And it, you know, saved my life twice. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, oh, we should, we should, we should write a book about that. <laughs> so we did. The next book was Burnout. And it was mm-hmm. uh, the science of unlocking the stress cycle. Because uh, the stress response cycle is the science that I talked about in chapter four of Burnout. Yeah. And it's not, and- not a sex book, right? Because as we know, stress is one of the number one reasons people can't find that connection, can't experience pleasure like they once yeah. used to. Um, so it's a book we recommend all the time. And there's a whole interview about it. And so if that word stress kind of just gets you perked up, check out that interview in the book. And, and then- there's a... Uh- <laughs> The, the best predictor of a person's sexual well-being is their overall well-being. Yeah. So if someone is listening to this and is like, I do not have the wherewithal even to begin to think about changing my sex life, yeah. burnout. Yeah. Um, but the other situation is that the stress of writing, come as you are, and then traveling for a book tour <laughs> was so stressful that I lost all interest in actually having any of the sex that I was spending my whole life thinking, writing, and talking about. Yeah. Uh, and I tried following my own advice from Come As You Are. I worked with the responsive desire model. I put my body in the bed. I let my skin touch my partner's skin. And I waited for my body and brain to wake up and be like, oh, I like this. I like this person. This is a great idea. And instead, what happened is I would cry mm. and fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And... We would go months with nothing, nothing. Uh, and inevitably, I do the like beating myself up because I'm the quote unquote expert. And even I can't fix the situation. So I did what anyone would do. I went to Google Scholar and I looked at the peer reviewed research on couples who sustain a strong <laughs> sexual connection over the long term. And what I found there contradicted everything that was in the mainstream conversation about sex and long-term relationships. Because that conversation 
is all about keeping the motherfucking spark alive. Right. Yeah. Novelty, adventure, try new things. Open yeah. your relationship up. And look, all those things, if you like them, if they're for you, great. And also, the people who sustain strong sexual connections, regardless of their genders, regardless of their relationship structure, regardless of whether they're BDSM, vanilla, anything else, when they describe great sex, they don't talk about the spark. Mm. It doesn't make the list of the top 10 characteristics of great sex. They talk about vulnerability and authenticity and connection. They talk about pleasure. Yes. And you know what? The number one reason why couples of any gender combination go to sex therapy is for desire differentials. We live in a world where people are really worried about desire. Meanwhile, these people who are doing great aren't even thinking about desire. What the heck? And so uh, I sort of started working with that idea. And I looked at a whole bunch of other affective neuroscience, which I'm sure we will talk about, and uh, used it to improve my own situation. And ultimately, I was like, I should... I should write a book about this, even though I knew writing a book was going <laughs> to totally destroy the sex life that I was trying to fix, <laughs> which it did. But now we have but, strategies. <laughs> yeah. The good news is, so after I finished Come As You Are, I tried using that to fix things and it didn't work. After I finished Come Together, uh, you know. I had this hundred thousand word tome of instructions and we've been using it. And like the best thing I can say about the book is even if nobody else ever reads it, it has mm. already made things better for us than it has maybe ever been in our entire relationship, including mm. like our very first month of being together. Oh, I love that for you. Me yes. too. And it's even though like I am now in a perimenopausal situation, mm -hmm. which is a whole, mm -hmm. that's a delight. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also have long COVID. Mm -hmm. which is a terrible pain Hate in the that ass for you. Yes. Yeah. I, I get great medical care. I'm extremely fortunate. I'm yeah. getting better. And also it still yeah. is a major barrier in whether or not my brain and body have access to pleasure on any given day. And it's a microcosm, right, of where so many of us are at. So many of us are overburdened, overstressed, hypervigilant about the world itself. Um, sexuality feels very fraught for many people right now. Mm -hmm. And if we're looking for that desire, the spark, um, what we're ignoring there is the context. And if pleasure is the measure was the Nagoski anthem of Come As You Are, the anthem of this book is really Center Pleasure. Center pleasure, yes. Can you talk about what that means and what it actually looks like in practice to what you say co-create a context for pleasure? Right. So we know from chapter three of Come As You Are that our experience of pleasure depends on the context in which a sensation makes its way through our nervous system up to our brain, right? Mm -hmm. So when we are in a calm, safe, connected um people who are into polyvagal theory, when we're in a ventral state, that's where our brain really has access to pleasure. When we're in a stressed, depressed, anxious, lonely, repressed rage, we've all got it. 
uh, negative affect situation, it is much more difficult for our brain to interpret any sensation at all, even genital sensations, as being pleasurable. So what is the context that allows our brain to be in a state where it can interpret the sensations we receive as being something to explore with curiosity and a sense of play? And the answer to that question is going to be different for everyone, for every relationship, and it's going to change across time. But that conversation between and among partners of like, what is the context where it is easy for your brain to experience the things I enjoy doing with your body as pleasurable. And it's both external circumstances and internal state. Some things we can control, some things we can't, right? And so managing those inhibitions becomes part of the strategy that you bring together in this connection. And, you know, as we're talking about this book, like, I really want to highlight that sexual connection, yes, is between partners, perhaps long-term partners, but ultimately sexual connection is also with ourselves, with our own lives. And when we talk about centering pleasure, it's another language for what we've called prioritizing pleasure, um, allowing pleasure to be something good for us that we focus on and then let in. And that brings us to this word savoring, which when I saw this as a title, as one of the chapter titles in your book, I was, you know, praise handsing around the room. Um, Savoring is one of our favorite words. What does savoring have to do with it? So the reason both of us will always have a job is because we live in a world where we talk about guilty pleasure all the time, (laughs) and we never just talk about pleasure. So to pause in any given day and notice that something feels good, whether it's through any of our extraceptive sentences, it's something you see, hear, smell, touch, or taste, whether it's something you think, believe, or imagine, whether it's a body sensation, to notice that something happened and it felt good, mm-hmm. to pause and capture it as a memory, like a little looping video, like a, like a gif of pleasure, to say out loud to a person who is with you, this feels good. Mm-hmm. These look at that sunset. Yes. Look look at that. Yeah. This food is good. <laughs> For a long time in in our house, uh, my husband and I basically did not have hot water. <laughs> For like a year and a half. Yeah. Uh, wow. my husband would uh I would let him know what my timeline was for coming home from work and he would fill the tub and put a bucket heater in it. So there'd be a hot bath waiting for me when I got home. That's love. And now that we have hot water, very not a week goes by that he does not say to me, you know what I love? Hot water. Hot water. Mm-hmm. Noticing things that are pleasurable makes it easy. It's like it reinforces and builds the pathways in our brains that experience pleasure. Every time you notice pleasure, it makes it easier for you to experience pleasure again, to experience pleasure more deeply. So that practice of savoring. And so one of the books that I read as part of my research is actually has nothing to do with sex. It's called Mm -hmm. Off the Clock by Laura Vanderkamp. And she talks about the ways that savoring actually results in a life that feels more worth living, a a life that seems longer, 
because you notice more moments along the way. Instead of just having day after day, that's the same. And so in your memory, they fold together as all being one day. And so time seems to go really fast because it's not that nothing happened. It's just the same thing happened over and over. When you notice the moments of pleasure, it creates points in time of how your life is passing. And because it makes pleasure easier to experience, it makes the quality of your life overall better. Your life becomes more worth living when you pause to notice the pleasure that happens in your life. And I am not saying it is easy. I'm a person who lives with depression. I've experienced double depression. I've experienced the remarkable triple depression. And in those times, my conversations with my therapist are like, can you find a fragment of a second today that was pleasurable. Um, in polyvagal uh, body-based practices, they call it looking for glimmers, mm -hmm. just a tiny little spark of light somewhere in the midst of all the darkness. And if that's where anybody is listening to this, let me tell you, I know from experience that those tiny glimmers are there every day. There's some tiny, like someone like sparking flint in a cave. There is a spark of light. And you know, when you're trying to start a fire in the dark, that spark, you do it often enough, eventually you're going to catch flame. It's going to happen. Especially if you breathe on it. <laughs> yeah. Especially gently. if you breathe on it. And that's, you know, bringing the savoring practice. I often think gratitude journals and things that keeps it really mental and um, abstract for people. Whereas savoring pleasure in the moment, especially while it is happening and suspending time, as you said, I really love that. Um, I often say at people's, you know, parties or weddings, like, slow down and savor this, right? Like suspend yeah. time and look around you. Um, but the science shows us that, as you said, like yeah. practicing pleasure makes pleasure easier. Yes. It reinforces those pathways. We start building associations. And so if your glimmer in the day is like that one cup of tea that's just so right, mm -hmm. you know, we can build on that. And especially when we share pleasures. I think about, have you read Hannah Gadsby's memoir? No. They write about um, writing Nanette. Mm -hmm. um, and using this sort of idea of glimmers, they actually microdosed. MDMA mm -hmm. and thought of tiny things that bring them pleasure, like the chink of a teacup nestling into a saucer, mm -hmm. that tiny sound being a place they can go in their head when they're talking about the difficult stuff to hold themselves in a safe place, anchored up out of the darkness. Um, so, uh, you know, we're far from the first people to talk about this, too. Like, it's worth saying out loud that Black women have been saying this for generations. All I did was read a bunch of neuroscience that talked about, like, sort of the mechanism underlying it. And what surprised you about that science? So having been so embedded already in the field and kind of, I imagine you approached a lot of science thinking you knew already. Um, and as you said, like, it disrupted a lot of what we thought we knew within the field. So what were some of the surprises that kind of upended the table for you? Honestly, the science-related surprises were mostly negative, um, <laughs> including how bad and not inclusive the science was, how yes. ableist it was, how 
I mean, if it didn't just completely ignore trans people, it did not write about trans people in a way that I would want any trans person to read. Mm -hmm. Um, It would represent a study of a population that was 90% white women as a study of all women. (laughs) It was very distressing to me that I've been doing this work for as long as I have, and the science is so far behind where the world has moved politically. Right. That it has been so slow. Um, I've sort of mourned that and gotten used to the idea that the science is going to be, and that it always is. The history of sex science is that the people who get studied create a force that requires the science to adapt to it. It it can go in the other direction where the science assists the people who are being studied, um, but it is always a mutual interaction. And we are just in one of those moments where the science needs to catch up with people. Hmm. Uh, the other... <laughs> The other surprising thing uh, had nothing to do with the science at all and everything to do with the way I was writing about long-term relationships. And it's going to be feelings so and Mm. be about death and cancer. So if people want to skip forward, go ahead. Uh, This is the first time I've ever missed a book deadline uh, because two weeks before my book was due, a friend of mine died. Yeah. Of cancer. Yeah. Fuck cancer. Yeah. Um, and she was right around my age. And mm-hmm. she had been married to her wife for almost exactly the same time that I had been married to my husband. Yeah. Uh, and it's not like I didn't already know that death is a part of life. But this was this like visceral reminder. Yeah. And It had not been a part of a book about sex and long-term relationships when a lot of people think about long-term relationships as till death do us part. And so I, the book was late and I completely changed the second half of the book to acknowledge that we are not promised abundant time Mm. with the people we love. We are promised change. (laughs) And the way we carry and hold change together is what characterizes the quality of our connection with that person, even knowing that we may not have abundant time with this other person, we can be patient with them. If we wish they would change faster, we can be kind and compassionate with them because I don't want to waste a day being mad at them. Because I chose to be with them, and I want to be with them where they are. (sighs) Breathing that in and this sense that when we talk about connection, which is on the cover of your book, it's on the t-shirt I'm wearing right now, we're not talking about a heteronormative monogamy relationship till death do us part that's your long-term relationship, LTR. We're talking about a web of connection between us humans that includes our friends, our best friends, our colleagues, and how the tidal shifts of life affect us all within that. And one of the things we don't make enough space for in our conversations about eroticism and sex and desire is grief. Grief. 
and our ability to feel it. And that's so many of us, just like we don't have practice in experiencing ecstasy and bliss and the bigness of that, grief is also a high arousal state of deep feeling that if we don't have the skills to feel it, then it can really become a long-term chronic roadblock to getting back to feeling the rest of life. And this has come up with us in conversations and coaching sometimes where people are like, I just don't know why I can't feel the good thing. It's like, what it, what grief, or as you say, rage yeah. sometimes is in the way. Sometimes it's, yeah. The two are, so even though neurologically they have different channels, grief and rage, I find that rage is often um, a mask or a protective state for grief. It's like it's standing between you and your grief to try and keep keep you safe from the grief or keep the grief safe from you. Mm. Mm-hmm. And how some of the same ways that we are intimate with one another, both our lovers and our friends, um, they function across the emotional spectrum, right? So when we say just hold me, just hold me might be just hold me in my state of afterglow after you just made me calm my brain out. And it might be just hold me while I cry. And when I grieve the loss of my beautiful friend, mm-hmm. um, and we might turn to our communities to hold us where, our- you know, I think a difficult thing is when it's just hold me while I grieve the hurt you caused me. Yeah. Like you're my person and that hurt and you're my person and I need you. Mhm. And so where do we meet for that, right? And these are all of the conversations that we navigate together in our relationships and when we're trying to be long-term lovers with someone. And long-term could be months, it could be measured in days, it could be measured in years or decades, um, as I'm discovering on my poly journey right now. um, Duration is not a measure. One of the questions that people ask is, what counts as a (laughs) long-term relationship? Uh, And for me, it's long-term when you go through a major change together, mm. when it survives a change. It has been one relationship, and that now it's something else because we did that. Wow. That's big. <laughs> and so that leads us to this concept in your book that I loved these two words together, connected authenticity. Yes. Because sometimes we feel like in connection with people, maybe our natal family, maybe our colleagues, friends even, but we don't truly feel ourselves or that we can fully relax and be in that ventral vagal state of safe belonging. So how do we cultivate connected authenticity? What does that take? Oh, man. <laughs> ask, ask, ask the easy questions, why don't you? <sighs> Before we continue, I want to take a minute and thank our sponsor for this episode. Dipsy Stories is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories and rich soundscapes ready to turn you on and reveal your yearnings. There's a huge library to choose from with new content released every week. So in between listening to your favorite genres, you can try something new like vampire erotica or fairy smut. They also have soothing sleep stories so you can slip into slumber feeling soothed and sexy. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pleasure. 
That's 30 days full access for free when you go to dipsystories, D-I-P-S-E-A, stories.com slash pleasure. You'll find this link in the show notes and at pleasuremechanics.com slash toolbox, where we gather all of our links to equip you with the best tools and resources for your erotic journey ahead. That's pleasuremechanics.com slash toolbox. And now back to my conversation with Emily Nagoski. So how do we cultivate connected authenticity? What does that take? So there's going to be different paths. I wanted to say that it starts with cultivating your own understanding of your authenticity, but that's I know for sure that that's wrong. Um, part of what <laughs> Peggy Kleinplatz's research shows us is that the paths that magnificent lovers take, some of them start with like individual cultivation and transition into relationship, but some of them start with relationship where you discover your authentic self through connection. Um, Mm. Feminists in the 80s called it connected knowing, a way of knowing yourself through knowing others. Mm. And both are legitimate. Mm. So connected authenticity can start with either connection or authenticity. And what matters is that you're moving toward a place where you can be as close to 100% of who you truly are in the presence of another person. And they also can be 100% of who they truly are in your presence. And it takes the dismantling of all of purity culture and the patriarchy out of your brain. No biggie. Yeah, right? Like, (laughs) easy. Yeah. No, it's, there's only two ideas in the book that required two chapters. One was the emotional floor plan, which is like the big neurosciencey idea in the book. And the other was the patriarchy, which I call the gender mirage in this book, um, because I want straight people to read it and feel safe. <laughs> and let's touch on that a bit, because when you say, you know, moving towards magnificent, um, as the research shows, is as much a process of unlearning and dismantling myths And you talk about these invisible imperatives. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's such a liberating framework to remember that we are all conditioned. We are all raised within a framework of what are often invisible, naturalized imperatives that until we see them look real. And that's why the word mirage is just Nagoski level brilliant here, right? Because it feels real until you shift your perspective just a little bit and then it fucking dissolves. Yeah. The closer you get to it, the more you're like, it's it really, <laughs> it really did seem like there was water there. And yeah. then I took five steps closer and it, evaporated. It didn't evaporate. The water was never there. Mm-hmm. It, va- it just, the illusion went away. Yeah. And, and that can uh, be both like a crushing disappointment and also a liberation, right? Because yes, you're not moving towards something. Yes, yes. Yeah. Pe- man, people, one of the difficult things about writing what I would consider a selfie-helpy kind of book is that these <laughs> books are usually written with the idea of like, look, there's an aspirational ideal toward which you are trying to move. Let me help you on that journey toward that aspirational ideal. And I can't do that 
because the aspirational ideal is made of these sex imperatives, which is a term I'm taking from mediated intimacy, a term written by three different people, and I can't remember all their names, but the first author is Meg John Barker, mm-hmm. mediated intimacy. The Mm -hmm. idea of these sex imperatives that are communicated, they were looking at pop culture in particular, but it's communicated through formal education, through religion, and also also through the medical industrial complex. Mm -hmm. All of like our idea of who we're supposed to be as a sexual person is a factually incorrect, often deliberately destructive fiction. And our effort to conform to that ideal is only destroying us. So the trick is not to, like, I'm not trying to help people move toward an ideal. I'm trying to help them move toward deeply embodying the idea that who they are is someone worth being. More than enough, inherently lovable, inherently worthy of connection. Yeah. Yep. Already. The, did yep. I tell you that uh, when before Come As You Are was published, the publisher wanted Come As You Are not to be the title because it wasn't aspirational enough? And mm-hmm. I was like, no, no, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For women, the most aspirational idea in the world is that they already are and have everything they need yeah. to be lovable and good. And yet people will hear that and feel into all that they actually do want and feel as possible and this bigger sense of connection and joy and bliss that they sense maybe is possible. And the path there that you lay out in the book is like an incremental path of warm curiosity of mm-hmm. staying in that connected authenticity as we strip away these shoulds and supposed tos and we stop shooting on one another what comes up then and how do we just be warmly curious for this and I love that addition of warm curiosity Um, it's a really beautiful addition I'm so glad that part was very not easy to write Mm. because it again sort of the puritanical foundation of self-help American literature is to like beat yourself up until you're better (laughs) and to say (laughs) what if what if you were kind and loving towards yourself and healed Mm -hmm. instead of beating yourself up Um, it is a profound shift in approach Mm -hmm. one of my biggest concerns about this book is that it'll be too big too different, too difficult, too heavy a lift for people. Um, because I like I'm asking people to be really kind and patient with themselves and with each other. Mm-hmm. And to entirely reconceptualize what they understand a long-term sexual relationship to look like, that it is grounded not in desire, but in pleasure. That it's not dysfunctional, not to want sex you do not like, which sounds so obvious when you say it out loud. And yet, again, the number one reason couples seek sex therapy is because of a desire difference. Last night, I did a a sort of Q&A live event with people who pre-ordered the book, and they gave me a stack of like 80 or 90 questions. (laughs) And the ones that weren't about (laughs) orgasm or communication were about desire. 
Nobody really asked about pleasure. But part of that question about desire is why am I not liking what I am supposed to should like, right? Yes. And that's the imperative. And I really feel like this book was um, informed by a neurodivergent standpoint, by a standpoint that understands we all have different needs, like physiological needs to thrive as individuals, let alone within relationships. And part of the work here is that authenticity means knowing who you are and what you need, whether that's dim lights or bright lights at Mm -hmm. night. And if you and your partner need different things, you need to negotiate that. And that's just one example of the millions of negotiations we make as organismic beings with organismic needs. Um, And I want to take a pause and then unpack this idea of the emotional floor plan, because this is one of the most powerful tools in the book. As you said, it takes up multiple chapters and it's revolutionary to get uh, concrete about who we are as individuals and our own pathways to things like lust. This for me was the tool that helped me move towards something better in my own erotic connection. Um, Because it wasn't that I didn't like the sex that was available to me in my relationship. I knew that like, if I could just get there, whatever that means, if I could just get in the mood, if I could like put my skin against my partner's skin and not cry and fall asleep, that we would have a good time. Mm -hmm. And yet I couldn't, like I couldn't, I just, I had lost the ability to can, I was stuck someplace. And I tried to find out where it was I was stuck and how to get unstuck out of that place and into the place that I wanted to be, which was the lust space. So I looked at the affective neuroscience. I want to mention that it is totally bananas that in 2024, there is not one agreed upon model for how human or even mammalian emotion works. There's at least three really big models for how emotion works. At least three, probably more. I picked the one that included sex. And it's Jacques Panksepps, uh, uh, famously known as the rat tickler, the father of affective neuroscience. And he looked at how the structures of mammalian brains build a foundation of emotion. And then I made up a metaphor to make it useful. Thank in you life. for that. Because I've read so the science I, I, and until the metaphor, it was so much more an idea. And then it became a strategy. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. But on some level, I want this like just to be like a sex book that helps people have better sex lives. When I started writing it, I was like, I'm going to write a short, <laughs> really approachable, friendly little dare book. you. <laughs> and as I wrote... I was like, oh, shit. Oh, man. But I really, like, I can't just talk about, like, what great sex is. I also have to talk about the barriers between us and great sex. And ultimately, I do have to help people navigate those barriers. I have to do all three of those things. And it's not a complete book unless I do. And that's why it's 100,000 words. <laughs> Love that. Love your beautiful brain. Thank you so much for sharing it. <sighs> Thank you. This has mm-hmm. been, like like a brain bath of pleasure for me. Mm -hmm. Ventral. 
It's been super f- so fucking yes. ventral for me. <laughs> yes. Big thanks to Emily Nagoski for joining us for this conversation and for this incredible book. You'll find the rest of this interview all about this incredible framework of mapping your emotional floor plan in the pleasure pod, along with a guided practice so you can really implement this powerful strategy and find your specific pathways back to lust. That's all waiting for you in the pleasure pod at pleasuremechanics.com slash pod. Join our pleasure pod, explore with us as a community, support the show. You'll also unlock a curated library of the best of Pleasure Mechanics resources and have the opportunity to join us for live monthly calls. You'll find it all at pleasuremechanics.com slash pod. We can't wait to welcome you all there. And we'll see you next time with another episode of Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.